This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Russian forces have attacked Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, destroying government buildings, an opera house, and a concert hall. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky denounced the attack, saying, quote, a missile targeting the central square of a city is open, undisguised, terrorism. Meanwhile, a 40-mile Russian convoy has been heading toward the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. Writing for In These Times, foreign policy expert Phyllis Benes says, quote, right now we need an immediate ceasefire and serious negotiations on broader issues. That means urgent diplomacy, not more military force to end this war. Phyllis Benes is director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. She's the author of numerous books, including Understanding ISIS and the New Global War on Terror. Welcome to the program, Phyllis. Great to be with you, Sonali. First, let's talk about whether you think Russia has gone further than you might have imagined. I have to confess, in the lead up to this war, when Biden was claiming that Russia was just about to invade, it felt a little bit like hyperbole. However, it is playing out in a very serious manner, more serious than I imagined. What about you? Pretty much the same. I wasn't taking so much uh reacting to Biden as much as sort of looking at what would be in, in what Putin might perceive as Russia's interest. And there didn't seem to be any way this could be something that was going to end well for Russia, let alone the disaster that it's wreaking on Ukraine and the region as a whole. But no, I, I think also, I think many of us were surprised at how quickly they moved, how far they were prepared to go. Uh, there seems to be no limit beyond that imposed by the resistance uh, of the Ukrainians themselves, their military and the popular resistance. So let's talk about what it's going to take to address the situation. The United States and the EU and NATO really uh, made very clear that they wouldn't tolerate this war. They promised swift, harsh consequences. Of course, now that it started short of actually putting troops on the ground, which it seems nobody wants, thankfully, they are resorting to what they're calling crippling sanctions. And Putin seems to basically have called Europe and the United States' bluff. Is that fair? I'm not sure it was a bluff. I think that Putin and the people around him realized there were going to be severe consequences, even if they hadn't gone quite this far. Uh, they were going to face economic consequences for sure. This notion of, a, of sanctions that are designed to, quote, cripple the economy, that means it's designed to impact ordinary people, which it's doing across Russia. People are unable to access their own bank accounts. The level of uh, inflation is up, I think, at 30% now. The central bank is being forced to raise, to double the level of interest rates, it's going to be very, very tough uh, on Russians. And the question, one question will be, what kind of pressure does that bring to bear on Putin and the oligarchs around him? It's pretty clear that they have gone to great lengths to protect their own interests ahead of all of this. So the question of what will be the impact, will there be any impact on Putin and Lavrov themselves, for instance, that's a tricky one because while they are now personally facing harsh sanctions. I don't think either one of them are likely to have uh, assets in the United States, for instance. It's not about that. But if there is, uh, if they make good on this threat of a travel ban, for instance, Lavrov is the Russian top negotiator. 
if negotiations get serious, which hopefully they will within hours or days because they are desperately needed, if we need diplomacy, and we do, putting the lead diplomat of one side under a travel ban is not the way to get those diplomatic measures underway. So that could be a very serious, uh, that could be a very serious problem. But there's no question that the level of sanctions that are being invoked here, which some of which have been imposed on Iran, some have been imposed on, on uh, Venezuela and Cuba over the years, on other countries as well, but never in a country that is as big, certainly no nuclear uh, powered country at war has been faced with this kind of sanctions. And a country <clears throat> with, despite its, its relatively tiny uh, economy relative to the United States, it's still a major economic player in the world, in the global economy, particularly in the fossil fuel world. So in that context, these levels of, uh, of, of economic sanctions are going to have a very wide uh, impact far beyond the leadership in Russia, who ostensibly are the main target. And of course, sanctions, unfortunately, have always been seen as a diplomatic, nonviolent tool by Western nations, when in fact, their effect on so the grounds are uh, on the ground of countries that are impacted is, is a tantamount of violence. Um, Absolutely. It's not even a question of, you know, how does it compare if we look at the actual use of these kinds of broad based economic sanctions that are designed to cripple the economy? We saw the impact of that most dramatically perhaps in Iraq, where the, the years of sanctions led to the deaths of over a million Iraqis, 500,000 children under the age of five uh, in those first six years. So this notion that sanctions are somehow an alternative to war is simply a lie. It's simply false. They are a tool of war. They are an instrument of war. They are an, an alternative to military force, and they end up potentially killing far more people than the military force itself uh, that might be used. So it's a, it's a very, very dangerous moment. It's not just that it's a slippery slope when you target a few individuals that that can get wider and wider. That's a problem also. But when you're talking about sanctions that are identified from the get-go as being designed to cripple the entire economy, to bring the economy to its knees, that's the kind of language we've been hearing from policymakers. That means that the 145 or so million Russians, ordinary people struggling to survive, are not going to be a consideration. Then we look at what's the impact on Ukraine when that goes forward and on the people of Ukraine that are fighting against a, a, an illegal military invasion and the leftover uh, uh, impact of, of sanctions that will be impacting globally. It's a, a really disastrous uh, situation. So let's talk about how we got here, because that forms the basis of how we get out of here, as you point out in your article. It, it's certainly true that Putin has these ambitions, that he is expansionist, that he is authoritarian. Um, however, what isn't being covered as much in the U.S. media is the role that the U.S. and NATO have played in provoking Putin. NATO was formed to hold off the former Soviet Union. The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. We saw in the Afghanistan war that NATO got a new lease on life by engaging in a new war. Is it true that NATO has essentially made overtures to nations like Ukraine on Russia's border without actually having a plan in place for what 
NATO would do if Russia, you know, refused to stand for it, as, as is happening right now? Is, is that invitation yeah. for Ukraine to join NATO part of this equation? Absolutely. And what we saw, as you say, when, when NATO was created, the, the slogan that gave rise to it was that it was designed to keep the U.S. in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. Hmm. That was kind of the framework of what's this, what's this new 1949 uh, institution that we're creating. But the key thing here, Sonali, is that NATO was always created to be a military alliance, not a diplomatic institution. So when, for example, in 1999, the 50th anniversary year of NATO, when many people were saying, okay, 50 years is enough, let's say happy birthday and bye-bye, because there's no reason any longer for this, even assuming there was to begin with, but that now when the, the Soviet Union has collapsed, the Warsaw Pact, which was the Soviet-led military alliance that was kind of the, the uh, comparative uh, uh, version on the other side of, the, of NATO, that had collapsed. Why would we need this military alliance? But instead of saying, okay, maybe it's time to get rid of NATO and go back to the notion that diplomats should run the diplomacy, like the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, that includes all the European countries, including Russia, including Ukraine and the United States. That's the kind of diplomacy that we needed. But instead of that, the U.S. chose to make NATO somehow by fiat a, a diplomatic actor, and they did it specifically around the war in Kosovo. So when the U.S. wanted <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, launch a war in Kosovo in the, in the aftermath of the Balkan War that had, waged, uh, that had raged for so many years already, they knew that the United Nations Security Council, the only agency that in international law is actually has the right to declare what would make a, a war legal, they knew they'd never get approval from the Security Council because Russia would veto any, th any threat of a war against, uh, uh, against Kosovo. So instead, the US said, okay, we won't even go ask the United Nations, despite what international law says, despite what the UN Charter says, we'll go ask the NATO High Command, which is like, okay, who said they are authorized to do anything like that? They're not, but no one challenged the US decision. So NATO in that context, it's kind of like the, the hammer and the nail. If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're the NATO high command, every international problem looks like it needs international NATO-led military intervention. And that's precisely what happened. Suddenly NATO is in charge of giving the authority to the US and its coalition partners, its NATO partners, to fight a war that killed innumerable numbers of people in Kosovo. Then we have Afghanistan starting in 2001, as you remember so well. Uh, and since that time, the notion that NATO should be removed has fallen off the agenda. And the only issue is which countries should be welcomed into NATO when. And here we get into a, a tricky business. This is one of these things, one of the things I said in the article is that history is determined by when you start the clock. So there have been periods where the U.S. and other NATO allies made pretty clear to the Russians in the post-Cold War era after 1991, made clear that they were not going to have Ukraine in NATO. They never wrote it up. It was never anything official, but they made it clear. And other, it wasn't only the U.S., it wasn't only the famous James Baker, uh, Gorbachev discussions. It was also 
leaders of Germany, France, and Britain at various points made the same case to the Russians. Don't worry, we're not going to allow uh, Ukraine to join. But it was never made official. What was made official, if you look forward, if you jump forward in, in our clock and start the clock at, and in 2008, what you find is that there was a, a NATO summit in Bucharest in April of 2008. And in that uh, summit declaration, and these were the heads of state of all the NATO countries, 30 heads of state. So this is pretty official. And I found the language of it on the NATO website, so nobody can really deny it right now. Article 23 of that declaration says, NATO welcomes Ukraine's and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations for membership in NATO. We agreed today, that's in their language, we agreed today that those countries will become members of NATO. That's pretty definitive. Now, whether that was what was being listened to or the unofficial guarantees that really this is not going to happen, which is, I think, in, ironically enough, I think the official position now. I don't think either the U.S. or any of the other European leaders want Ukraine and or Georgia to be joining NATO anytime soon, except for the political gain of, of asserting it right now in the midst of this war. So it's this terrible irony in a certain way that something that was not going to happen would not be acknowledged publicly. That's one of the things that clearly should be on the table for the negotiations that at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later, will have to be part of ending this war. Every war ends with a negotiated settlement. Sometimes it's a surrender, sometimes it's a peace agreement, but whatever it is, there's gonna to have to be negotiations. As soon as those negotiations start and people on both sides start putting on the table what are their concerns, one of them is gonna to have to be, is Ukraine gonna be in NATO or not? All of these countries that have been, including the US, that have been prepared to say unofficially and quietly and off the record, there's no way in hell that NATO is gonna be joining uh, sorry, that there's no way that, the, that Ukraine is going to be joining NATO in any foreseeable future. They need to say that out loud and write it down. That needs to be one of the official positions. Once we settle on the issue of an immediate ceasefire, the withdrawal of Russian troops from this illegal invasion, because we should be clear, whatever the provocations, and they were enormous, they do not justify, in my view, and I think a widespread view, they do not justify the Russian action of going to war against Ukraine. So uh, you also point out in your article that the United States has you know, built military bases in Poland, 100 miles from the Russian border, has been deploying troops around Russia. What could, and, and of course, at the same time, um, perhaps we are fortunate from an anti-war perspective that Biden is president as opposed to someone like Trump. What can President Biden do right now to pull this war back uh, non-violently without increasing and escalating military threats? This is such an important question, Sonali, and it's not easy. It's not easy because there's a full-scale state-to-state, military-to-military war underway. That doesn't get called off in an instant. But that's precisely what's needed, is an immediate ceasefire. What President Biden could do is to say, we are prepared to negotiate along with negotiations with, with Ukraine and with Russia and other NATO countries. We are prepared to negotiate an immediate ceasefire, a pullback of the, of the Russian military, 
an agreement that Ukraine will not be part of NATO anytime in the, in the foreseeable future, that we will reopen negotiations on the disarmament and particularly important, the nuclear uh, um, agreements that had been in place in, in, in Europe involving both Russia and the US and NATO countries uh, to control the, the rise of nuclear weapons across Europe. And some of those had been walked away by, by the former president. So we're, he could say, President Biden could say, we're prepared to go back into negotiations for nuclear abolition across Europe, making Europe a nuclear free zone across all sides. That would have to include US uh, uh, nuclear weapons that are held under NATO auspices, but under US control in five different NATO countries. It would have to include those. Uh, and there has to be another set of new nuclear disarmament agreements. All of those things are crucial and they are, all are possible. Right now, the negotiations are underway between the two warring sides, if you will, where there's this enormous disparity of power between the much more powerful Russian military and a much less powerful, although increasingly well-armed uh, uh, Ukrainian military. But there needs to be an acknowledgement from the United States that they are prepared to also stop sending weapons and instead sending diplomats. There needs to be money and people with expertise in medicine, in social work, in all those ways sent to deal with the refugee crisis that is rising on the, on the perimeter of, uh, of Ukraine. All of that is desperately needed. But the first step has got to be an immediate ceasefire and a pullback of the, of the Russian military. Phyllis Bennis, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We'll post a link to your article uh, that was just published in, in these times. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. My guest has been Phyllis Bennis. She is director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, the author of numerous books, including Understanding ISIS and the New Global War on Terror and Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan. She just published an article within these times entitled The U.S. Should Respond to Putin's Unconscionable Invasion of Ukraine with Diplomacy, Not War. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Are You With Sonali.